From New York, this is Democracy Now! You know, we won New Hampshire three times now. Three. three. We win it every time. We win the primary, we win the generals, we've won it, and it's a very, very special place to me. It's very important. Donald Trump wins New Hampshire. Nikki Haley vows to fight on. Then should Trump be barred from running for president for his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol? Or is taking Trump off the ballot an anti-democratic measure that'll only energize his base? We host a debate. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump won the Republican primary in New Hampshire, defeating former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who once served as Trump's U.N. ambassador. Trump won by about 11 percentage points. He got 54.5 percent of the vote. Haley received about 43 percent. On Tuesday night, Nikki Haley vowed to stay in the race. Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. During his victory speech, Donald Trump stood alongside two of his former rivals, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy. Trump called Haley an imposter and falsely claimed he'd won the general election in New Hampshire twice before, even though he lost to Hillary Clinton in 2016 and to Joe Biden in 2020. This is a great, great state. You know, we won New Hampshire three times now, three. three. We win it every time. We win the primary, we win the generals, we've won it, and it's a very, very special place to me. It's very important. With his victory on Tuesday, Trump becomes the first non-incumbent Republican candidate to win both the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary in the modern era as he moves closer to a rematch with President Joe Biden in November. Biden wasn't on the ballot in New Hampshire's Democratic primary, but he still won the state as a write-in candidate. Biden didn't run in the primary after New Hampshire refused a request by the Democratic National Committee to move its primary until after. After South Carolina's Biden's final vote count is still being tallied. Congressmember Dean Phillips placed second with about 20 percent of the vote. Marianne Williamson placed third with about 5 percent. You can see our interview with her at democracynow.org. We'll have more on the primary. We'll be going to New Hampshire after headlines. Israel's killed at least 210 Palestinians in Gaza over the past 24 hours as it intensifies its bombardment of the city of Khan Yunus. Israel's issued new evacuation orders to over 500,000 Palestinians in Khan Yunus, where many had sought refuge from Israel's attacks in the northern Gaza Strip. On Tuesday, at least six Palestinians died when a missile hit one of the U.N.'s largest shelters in Khan Yunus. The British news outlet, ITV, filmed Israeli forces fatally shooting a Palestinian man in Gaza shortly after he gave an interview about trying to help others evacuate to a safe area. The shocking footage shows Ramzi Abu Salul shot 
as he stood with several other men, one carrying a white flag. This is part of ITV's report, beginning with the words of Ramzi Abu Salul. The Israelis came to us and told us to evacuate, but they didn't let my brother out. We want to go and try to get them, God willing. The interview complete, our cameraman walked away. And then this happened. The interviewee had been shot and fatally wounded. You can see them place their flag on his chest. As he was carried away, the white flag was turning red. At the United Nations, Secretary General Antonio Guterres reiterated his call for a Gaza ceasefire. The entire population of Gaza is enduring destruction at a scale and speed without parallel in recent history. Nothing can justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. The U.N. Secretary General went on to criticize statements by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders opposing a two-state solution. Last week's clear and repeated rejection of the two-state solution at the highest level of the Israeli government is unacceptable. This refusal and the denial of the right to statehood to the Palestinian people would indefinitely prolong a conflict that has become a major threat to global peace and security. Guterres' comments came as the Wall Street Journal reports a group of five Arab countries have proposed a plan to end the war in Gaza and create a pathway toward a Palestinian state. As part of the deal, Saudi Arabia would also recognize the state of Israel. Israel's revealed more details about how 21 Israeli soldiers died in a single incident in Gaza Monday. The IDF says the reservists were planting explosive mines to blow up two buildings in eastern Gaza. During a firefight, Hamas militants hit one of the mines, setting off a chain reaction that toppled the buildings with Israeli troops trapped inside. Israel says the buildings were being leveled to create a so-called buffer zone in eastern Gaza. The Intercept reports this appears to be the first time the Israeli military has publicly admitted that it's systematic destroying whole areas of Gaza with the intent of depopulating the area. President Biden traveled to Virginia Tuesday for a campaign rally focused on abortion rights. Biden's speech was interrupted at least 13 times by protesters calling for him to support a ceasefire in Gaza. One protester screamed out, Genocide, Joe, how many kids have you killed today? Sit down. The New York Police Department has launched an investigation after pro-Palestinian students at Columbia University were sprayed on Friday with a hazardous, foul-smelling chemical during a campus protest. Eight students were hospitalized. The group Students for Justice in Palestine has alleged the chemical attack was carried out by two students who are former members of the Israeli military. No arrests have yet been made. The U.S. militaries carried out strikes inside both Yemen and Iraq as fears of a regional war in the Middle East grow. 
In Iraq, the U.S. hit three sites connected to a militia with ties to Iran. Iraq's national security adviser, Qasem al-Araji, condemned the attack, saying, quote, the U.S. should pile on pressure for a halt to the Israeli offensive in Gaza rather than targeting and bombing the bases of an Iraqi national body, unquote. Meanwhile, the U.S. bombed Yemen again earlier today, targeting what officials described as Houthi anti-ship missiles. This comes as Houthi forces continue to target commercial ships in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden as part of a campaign to pressure Israel to halt its assault on Gaza. A Russian transport plane reportedly carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war has crashed in Russia's Belgorod region near Ukraine. According to Russian media, all 74 people on board died. Russia's foreign ministry has accused Ukraine of downing the military plane but provided no evidence. Ukraine said it's investigating what happened and has accused Russia of, quote, carrying out special information operations directed against Ukraine. The crash comes a day after at least 18 Ukrainians were killed and 130 were injured as Russia fired a barrage of missiles at several cities, including Kyiv and Kharkiv. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said 130 residential buildings were struck in the attacks Tuesday. In other news from Europe, Sweden's now a step closer to joining the NATO military alliance. On Tuesday, the Turkish parliament voted to finally approve Sweden's membership. This leaves Hungary as the only country remaining that needs to approve Sweden's accession. This comes as 90,000 troops from the United States and other NATO nations are preparing to take part in NATO's largest military drills since the Cold War. The Bolton of the Atomic Scientists is warning the world remains as close to global annihilation as ever before. The Bolton has announced its doomsday clock remains at 90 seconds before midnight, where it was first set for the first time last year. Princeton University professor Alex Glazer spoke Tuesday. When we set the clock last year, there were major concerns uh, that nuclear weapons could be used uh, in, in Ukraine. And um, today's clock setting was, was still overshadowed uh, by the war in, in Ukraine, uh, but also the war uh, in Gaza, uh, which has caused enormous human suffering and uh, could lead to a broader conflict uh, in the region involving several nuclear weapon states and, and regional powers. A U.S. federal appeals court revived a $10 billion lawsuit filed by the Mexican government against U.S. gun makers. In 2021, Mexico sued six gun manufacturers, including Glock and Smith & Wesson, for aiding and abetting the unlawful transfer of hundreds of thousands of guns annually into Mexico, helping to fuel drug cartel violence. Mexico estimates 70 percent of the guns trafficked into Mexico come from the United States. In related news, Mexico's calling on the Biden administration to investigate how drug cartels are increasingly obtaining U.S. military-grade weapons, including rocket launchers, grenades, and belt-fed machine guns.
The Los Angeles Times has laid off about 115 journalists, slashing the size of its newsroom by 20 percent. Many of those who lost their jobs were journalists of color, including Jean Guerrero, who was the only Latina columnist for the Opinion Desk. The paper also laid off its only reporters who focus on covering black and Asian communities in Southern California. The layoffs are the largest at the L.A. Times since billionaire Patrick Soon Chung bought the paper in 2018. In other media news, Time magazines laid off 30 journalists. That's 15 percent of its unionized editorial staff. Meanwhile, The Baltimore Sun is in a state of turmoil after it was recently purchased by David Smith, the chair of the right-wing news network Sinclair. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, former President Donald Trump won New Hampshire's primary on Tuesday by over 11 percentage points, a vote of 54 percent, defeating former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who got 43 percent. Haley was the last major challenger to Trump after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his presidential bid Sunday night and threw his support to Trump. Trump is the first non-incumbent Republican presidential candidate to win races in both Iowa and New Hampshire since both states began leading the election calendar in 1976. In his victory speech Tuesday, Trump criticized Nikki Haley for losing New Hampshire and vowed he would beat President Biden in November. We've won almost every single poll in the last three months against crooked Joe Biden. Almost every poll. And she doesn't win those polls. And she doesn't win those. This is not your typical victory speech, but let's not have somebody take a victory when she had a very bad night. She had a very bad night. Nikki Haley will pass on the Nevada caucuses February 8th and put all her efforts and millions of dollars into ad buys for February 24th primary in her home state of South Carolina. In her concession speech last night in New Hampshire, she vowed to continue her campaign. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. from over. There are dozens of states left to go. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden won his party's primary, but did so as a write-in candidate. He didn't campaign or appear on the ballot after the Democratic National Committee, supported by Biden, voted to start its primary season next month in South Carolina. New Hampshire state government, controlled by Republicans, would not comply with the DNC's new rules and scheduled the primary for last night. As a result, Biden did not win any delegates from New Hampshire. His final vote count is still being tallied. Congressmember Dean Phillips came second with about 20 percent of the vote, with Marianne Williamson placing third with about 5 percent. 
For more, we're joined by Arnie Arneson, longtime radio and talk show host in New Hampshire, former New Hampshire legislator and Democratic gubernatorial candidate in the 92 elections. She's the host of The Attitude on WNHN-FM in Concord, New Hampshire. Arnie, welcome back to Democracy Now! I think you were our first guest in 1996 when we were covering the New Hampshire primary. Don't tell anyone. It's <laughs> aging both of us. And I've been covering presidential politics with you, Amy, for such a long time as well. So, so thank you for having me back. If you can first respond to Trump's win, the significance of that, and also explain how the New Hampshire primary works with independents, uh, with Republicans. He got something like two, uh, what, three quarters of the Republican vote. Uh, but I think Nikki Haley beat him when it came to Nick to independents. So let, let me let me we're such a quirky place. We actually have a law in New Hampshire and that law was actually written in 1975 that the New Hampshire primary has to come one week before any other primary in the country. So uh, when the Democrats, for example, decided to go to South Carolina, we couldn't change the law. The law said we have to have a primary, and the primary was yesterday. Republicans kept the same calendar, so therefore Republicans had an official primary, and the Democrats had an unofficial primary. But the law was we were going to have a primary by hook or by crook. We couldn't change it. The Republicans controlled the governor's office, the House, the Senate. They weren't going to rewrite the law. It was beneficial to them, the Republicans. So again... That's one of the reasons why Donald Trump had the only official primary and there was a write-in for Joe Biden. So now let me also explain something else. There are sort of three groups in New Hampshire, Republicans, Democrats, and something called undeclareds. Undeclareds are actually the largest uh, registered group in New Hampshire. They're over 40 percent. And um, as a result of the undeclareds in New Hampshire, if there is a election, Undeclares in the primary have a choice. They can pick up a Democratic ballot or they can pick up a Republican ballot on the day of the primary. There was no reason to pick up a Democratic ballot because what's the point? You were writing in Joe Biden. It wasn't going to be recognized by the DNC. So the motivation for them, all the motivation was to pick a Republican ballot. Now the question is, what were they going to do when they picked it up? They really only had two choices. They had Nikki, who is, I describe her as MAGA polite, or they had MAGA. In the other words, they had Donald Trump. And a, a lot of them basically were sort of, they, there was no way they could support Donald Trump. There were Republicans, maybe. There were conservatives, maybe, or even something moderate. But Donald Trump was so offensive to them that there was no way they were going to do it. So Nikki benefited from those undeclareds having nowhere to go on the Democratic side. And the only place they could go to exercise the franchise, for the most part, was on the Republican ballot. And that's one of the reasons why she was so successful with these undeclared, more moderate uh, uh, voters. And of course, Donald Trump was able to clean up with what? The conservative Republican base, because Republicans today are MAGA Republicans. They're not Republicans. They're MAGA Republicans. She was trying to somehow convince the small number left of more traditional Republicans and then grab those undeclared and say, now vote for me. But Amy, there's something that's really important here. She lost by 11 percentage points. Everyone says she may still have a future. There's some way to go. This state was designed for Nikki Haley. If there was a state, 
she could win in. In the entire United States, it was this state, and she still lost by 11 points. Can I explain to you why I say this? I just posted this on Facebook. I want you to hear it. She had everything in her political backpack, and she still lost. Why? She had great weather, unlike what you saw in Iowa. She had an affable political windsock named Chris Sununu, my governor, who basically was attached at her hip and gave actually probably more speeches than Nikki did and was more positive about her election than even she was. She had Coke money. The Coke uh, network decided in December that they were going to pick Maggie, I mean, um, Nikki to support. So starting in December, they were pouring millions and millions of dollars into her campaign, money she did not have, but they were able to do it. The Americans for Prosperity, have been, which is the Coke network, has been operating in New Hampshire for decades. They knew the state. They knew what kind of mailers to do. They knew how to bring people out, and they spent millions on her. She also, as I just mentioned, had the undeclared only having one choice to vote in the GOP primary. She had no Democratic primary of consequence because it was a write-in. And then last but not least, this is really important. What is New Hampshire? We are a highly educated, rich, white state that doesn't go to church. Okay. I mean, we, I mean, compared to Iowa, we are probably the second least church state in the country. And when you look at all those pieces, Amy, she should have won. She should have won, but she still could not win. What does that tell you? She doesn't have a future. The only future she has isn't whether he's a convicted felon, because even she said she would vote for him if he was the nominee, if he, if he was a convicted felon. She's obviously looking at the fact that he's probably not the healthiest man on the planet, and therefore she wants to be the person second in command in case he falls apart. And if he does, she'll say, look, I've been here. I survived so much. Maybe I should be your nominee. Well, Arnie, I wanted to ask you about uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, role here. Uh, you wrote in a piece for the raw story that, quote, by attempting to make South Carolina the first in the nation Democratic primary in 2024 was one of the biggest political blunders in your decades long time in public service. Why, why do you think that? OK, so I don't think that New Hampshire should be a prima donna. And she'd be assumed to go first. Let me just say that, okay? I've always said that. But this was not the time to make the switch. And the reason is, is that in 2028, give it to somebody else. But because it was Donald Trump, because there's such a pervasion of lies, that meant that if it was going to be a Joe Biden, you couldn't cede Iowa, you shouldn't cede New Hampshire to just a Republican conversation that was going to be covered nationally and internationally and over and over again. It's bad enough that Trump has an echo chamber everywhere. But then in some ways, Joe Biden gave him an even bigger echo chamber because there was no Democratic conversation in either Iowa and New Hampshire. And even if you thought people were running against Donald Trump, whether it was Ron DeSantis, whether it was Vivek, whether it was Nikki, they never touched Trump. So they all touched Biden. So all the negativity about why they should be the next candidate for the Republicans was not about that they should defeat Trump, is that they were defeating Biden. So to a large extent, he ceded them 
the playing ground. He allowed them to continue the lies, the distortion of the economy, the ideas about the border. All those things became the headlines and nothing about what he had accomplished, who he was, even the obviously the conversation about abortion. Now it's the third rail for Republicans. But they basically did not have another voice. And so by deciding to go to South Carolina, it was a yawn. Nobody's going to be focusing on that. It's assumed he's going to win. He doesn't gain anything with South Carolina, but he would have gained something by having another message coming out of Iowa, coming out of New Hampshire, as they were focusing on what the choice would be in 2024 for president. It was a stupid political mistake. That doesn't mean that we should always be first, but not in 2024 with Trump running for president again. This is a threat to democracy. This is an invitation to fascism. We could look at a country that we will not recognize after the November election. God forbid Trump wins. And and what did were you able to see in terms of Trump expanding uh, his his base uh, with uh, in New Hampshire uh, compared to pre uh, previous elections in which he's run? Did he expand his base? His base are Republicans. His base are MAGA. He doesn't expand his base. But frankly, if he's going to win the nomination for the he doesn't need to. In this state, perhaps he might have needed to, but he couldn't accomplish it. That's part of the problem. I mean, I, I describe I describe Nikki Haley as democracy light. Why? Because she is one of those individuals that said that actually Joe Biden won in 2020. In order to be a good Republican, you have to say that Joe Biden did not win in 2020. But she said that Joe Biden won in 2020. But then what does she say? But if Donald Trump is a convicted felon and he happens to get the nomination, I'll still vote for him. So part of the problem right now is if you don't buy into the lie that Joe Biden isn't legit, You can't be a Republican anymore. And if you actually believe that Joe Biden is the the president of the United States, then that's where you would expand your base. But he can't expand his base because he demands the following that follows him in his cult to say, Joe Biden is illegitimate. I am actually your president and I am the one to win because I will be your retribution. That's what he's about. And every time Amy says, well, chaos follows Donald Trump. Guess what? That's what Donald Trump loves. He loves the chaos. He flourishes in the chaos. And when people kept saying, well, he didn't debate, for example, he didn't debate this whole time, Donald Trump. Yes, he did. You know where he debated? He debated in front of judges, and that's what he debated. He loves being in a New York courtroom because he'd rather debate a judge than debate anyone about whether he should be the nominee for president. Ernie Arneson, when he called Haley an imposter. He falsely claimed he'd won the general election vote in New Hampshire in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. He didn't. She did. And in 2020, with Joe Biden, he won New Hampshire. Trump didn't, uh, as he continued that lie. Amy, you're acting like facts have meaning. I mean, with with Donald Trump, I mean, what everyone kept saying that remember when he said the comment about he mixed up Nancy Pelosi and Nikki Haley about what happened on January 6th? He didn't mix it up. 
I hate to break it to you. That wasn't a senior moment. That was intentional because now what he's doing is he's sort of doing this male merge so that now Nikki is Nancy Pelosi. Now Nikki is Hillary Clinton. Now Nikki is anyone who's actually taken him on and maybe defeated him. Now Nikki becomes that person. The cult doesn't care about the facts. You can say to him, but oh, Donald Trump, you lost. No, he never loses. And the base that follows him believes he never loses. So you and I are focused on numbers. We're focused on votes. We're focused on facts. That is basically not an essential requirement for people that support Donald Trump. They don't need facts. They just need him. Arnie Arneson, I want to thank you for being with us. Longtime radio and TV host in New Hampshire, host of The Attitude on WNHN-FM in Concord, New Hampshire, former New Hampshire legislator and Democratic gubernatorial candidate in the 92 elections. We will stay in New Hampshire next up and speak with journalist Jeff Charlotte. He's a Dartmouth professor in Hanover, New Hampshire, and author of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Stay with us. Free by New Hampshire's Eris Drew. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Donald Trump beat Nikki Haley by 11 percentage points in New Hampshire, despite nearly half the electorate being comprised of independent voters. Haley won six of 10 independents on Tuesday, but she lost three quarters of Republicans. According to the Associated Press, Trump was backed by Republicans who prioritize immigration and held a slight advantage among those prioritizing the economy, the two top issues among GOP voters in New Hampshire and Iowa. For more, we go to Hanover, New Hampshire. We're joined by award-winning journalist, professor, author Jeff Charlotte. He teaches English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. He's the author of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Jeff, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you start off by responding uh, to the primary last night and to Trump's uh, pretty much trouncing of Nikki Haley? We saw it coming, and it still felt awful here in New Hampshire. Uh, the various tactics to slow it down didn't work. But maybe the lesson that I think we can take from New Hampshire is uh, we're still seeing um, a, a lot of media speak of Nikki Haley. Can she go on? Uh, New York Times says this raises questions. It, the questions have long been settled. 
um, Trump is the nominee. Fascism is on the ballot. Uh, and I think that was clear in New Hampshire. I think it's also worth noticing that here in New, New Hampshire, when you talk to folks, yeah, there was opposition to, to Haley, or I mean, I'm sorry, opposition to Trump. Uh, uh, but no one was saying they won't vote for Trump if he's the nominee. This was not strong support for Haley. Um, let's move on. I, I don't even want to talk about South Carolina. I don't want to talk about Nevada. I want to talk about how we look at this thing that is threatening us uh, nationally. Uh, Jeff, you tweeted that uh, New Hampshire is not a, quote, moderate state, that there is no damn moderate state anymore. Could you explain yeah, I think I think the confusion that a lot of people had is that in really reductive terms, uh, New Hampshire uh, leans libertarian. It, it's a it's form of conservatism, a right wing reactionary politics is libertarian. I mean, we have a, a not insignificant secessionist movement in our state legislature called the Free State Movement, which actually began here at Dartmouth College. Um, uh, whereas Iowa, the, the form of reactionary politics uh, was evangelical. And I think a lot of the political press has is stuck in an old paradigm of social conservatives or business conservatives. Those things have merged. You see it no, uh, clearly in, in some of the plans that are now being formulated for a second Trump term. They're not going to be caught, you know, surprised uh, if when he comes back to office. So, for instance, the Right Wing Heritage Foundation, working with 74 other major groups, both evangelical and libertarian-leaning, have come up with something called Project 2025. It begins with evangelical values, putting the family first, saving the children, and it goes on to saying, let's realign the goals of America with management. This coming, by the way, from the Republicans, which is fooling people, uh, some people, into thinking it's a workers' party. It's an openly pro-big business and pro-so-called family values, um, which, of course, are, are being expressed now as hate values. Play a clip of uh, Jamie Dimon last week at the World Economic Forum. Uh, the J.P. Morgan CEO talked about how Trump has been right on many issues. This is uh, Dimon on CNBC. I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. Now, if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He's kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm -hmm. He grew the economy quite well. China, China virus. Ta tax reform worked. Can you respond, Jeff Charlotte? It's not only Jamie Dimon, that consensus at Davos, that Trump's going to win. Yeah, I'm so glad you played that clip. I think that was really important because we see if if we look back at the history of how fascist movements grow, and I want to emphasize it's a fascist movement. It's not yet a fascist government. There is a chance to stop it. But we see a period of adaptation. And that was what you saw at Davos. Those folks playing the odds and saying, hmm, could I get together? Could I work in a coalition with people? I mean, he's no leftist, he's no liberal, but could I work in a coalition with people to stop this fascism or could I find a way to prosper in it? And the vote at Davos was prosper within fascism. So when we look at the coalitions that we need to build to, to stop it, um, uh, we're going to have to think uh, other places, not that anyone thought that Davos was a place to start uh, building coalitions, but it does need to be broad. I wanted to go and to Donald Trump addressing the Republican Jewish Coalition Annual Leadership Summit in October. And this goes to the number one issue in New Hampshire, which was immigration. 
Activists that want to destroy our country. They want to destroy our country. Under Biden, we have not one but two immigration disasters. We have one on the border, and we have one in the Biden State Department, which is admitting colossal amounts of jihadists into our communities and campuses and our refugee programs. That's why you see all of these big demonstrations in New York, in Chicago. Nobody can believe what's taking place. They're letting them in at levels that nobody's ever seen before. We cannot allow that to happen, and we don't want to be like Europe with jihads on every corner. That's what happens. I mean, we're going to have, we're going to be like Europe. You take a look at London, you take a look at Paris, you take a look at what's going on over there. We want to be the United States of America and we want to make our country great again. Right now, we don't have a great country. We have a laughing stock. As president, I will end once and for all the mass importation of anti-Semitism into the United States. And just as I did before, we will keep radical Islamic terrorists the hell out of our country. We're going to keep them out of our country. We were keeping them out. We were keeping them out. Uh, uh, Jeff, Jeff Charlotte, if, if you could respond to those comments of, uh, of Donald Trump, especially given the fact that uh, New Hampshire is probably one of the states uh, perhaps least affected uh, by uh, immigration in the United States, given its, its, its distance uh, from the southwest border. <laughs> yeah. At first, I sort of want to say uh, Trump says it's going to end the mass importation of anti-Semitism in the United States, which doesn't happen. Uh, he alone is responsible for a lot of made in America anti-Semitism. Um, it's one of his products. Um, but the, the question of immigration, I think of a voter in, I think it was Bedford, New Hampshire, is a very wealthy uh, community, uh, described her way uh, self as on the way to play pickleball. She stopped to vote for Trump. Her issues were, we've got to get the immigrants out. She didn't say undocumented people. She didn't say illegal immigrants. She said, we've got to get all the immigrants out so the economy can grow. And once again, you see there this kind of the old political press of sort of breaking down on issues. Do you care about uh, social issues? Do you care about immigration? Do you care about economics? In Trumpism, all these things merge. And you heard that, too, in that response where he's 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 invoking this this uh, uh, fear word of jihad. The way Trumpism works is it adds enemies. It moves on. Uh, you know, five years ago, Trumpism wasn't particularly talking about trans rights. New Hampshire is now a frontline state uh, in uh, the struggle for, for trans freedom as our legislature takes up uh, the kind of laws you're seeing also in places like Utah. Um, but what it does, what Trumpism is doing in each one of these speeches and why we have to keep paying attention, and I know the temptation is strong to say, look, we know what he is, we know all this. We need to see how the movement's growing, how the movement's mutating, how it's taking the original fear of Islam that it began with and adding more and more fears and then combining them so that they're indistinguishable in the mind of the Trump voter. So what is the uh, what is the way forward for those who are opposed to this growing fascism, especially given the fact that so many young people in the United States who play such a key role in the, in the last election are being increasingly turned off by the uh, a war policies of the Biden administration? Uh, yeah, and that uh, young people are, are don't want to vote for Biden. I'm here uh, at Dartmouth College. If I if I encountered any students who wrote in Biden, they didn't tell me about it. Um, uh, they either voted for, as they told me, that guy from Minnesota. 
Dean Phillips so that they could not vote for Biden um, or uh, they voted for Haley as what they thought of as a tactical vote against uh, Trump. That's significant. Also significant, I think we really need to contend with this, is if you look at the Republican primary voters who voted for Trump, his strongest contingent was in the youth. And I think for a long time in American politics, it's as much of a truism, and, and I'll say it's as much of a truism on the left as so much of the kind of old maxims of political journalism that aren't working, is that the young will save us, that the youth will save us. We look at Trump growing his support in the 18 to 29 uh, sector. We look at Trump growing his support paradoxically amongst those former 20 Biden voters most critical of what Biden is doing in, in Gaza. Okay, so what's their solution? A significant number of them have been conned into the idea that Trump is an anti-war candidate. The guy who is, you, you hear this rhetoric as well, Trump never stopped any wars. Um, Trump is able to play both sides. He says, I'm going to raise Gaza. And at the same time, he's able in an age of diminishing media, and you started the show with the Baltimore Sun going down, and 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 Gene Guerrero at L.A. Times, who I should note, what is the preeminent expert on uh, Stephen Miller, uh, and the L.A. Times lets her go. So there's less and less information for young voters, and they're going to be more vulnerable to what uh, that the con Trump, Trump is trying to give them. So how do we do it? I don't have a. I'm not a, a political strategist. Um, but I do think it's popular front time. It's broad coalition time. Uh, and I don't know how we build a left liberal alliance to stop Trump. I'm not going to tell anybody to vote for Biden. Um, but I know we've got to stop Trump. I wanted to follow up, Jeff, on something you said before about the importation of anti-Semitism. And Trump is most responsible for that, you said. Um, I mean, going back to university, for example, of Virginia, that march in Charlottesville yeah. um, of those saying Jews will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, the white supremacists, from there to the insurrection. We're going to have a debate on uh, Trump being taken off the ballot in uh, various states. But on that issue of what, in fact, he represents, what the insurrection was about, what his role with the University of Virginia protests, what his comments on them. Yeah, I think, yeah, right, at, at, in Charlottesville, where they chanted, Jews will not replace us. I think, you know, Trump has managed to do something new in the anti-Semitism field, which is quite, it's quite an accomplishment when you think about it. He has this age-old uh, hatred, and he's, he's managed to innovate, which is to say that he's created a kind of anti-Semitism. And you saw it, for instance, in the speech he gave after his first indictment, where he leads off by saying, what's Jack Smith's real name? But the real tell was the line, uh, we're going to drive out the globalists, chase out the communists. These terms, which are heard as uh, uh, synonyms for Jews in an abstract sense, those are, he's quoting there two different gospels uh, from the New Testament, drive out and chase out, just to make sure no one missed it. But then tweaking it a little bit and making anti-Semitism such that the, the explicit anti-Semites, and they're out there, I think of folks like um, uh, uh, Charlie Kirk, I believe it is, at Turning Point USA, who are who are starting to question the what they used to call the Judeo part of Judeo-Christian values. Well, I mean, good, this is a kind of a, a narrow and bigoted idea of America, but they're saying, no, it's just 
Christian. Um, so on the one hand, you've got the hardcore anti-Semites being pleased. On the other hand, you've got Trump playing to this idea of an international banker. Talk, look at the people who he says are really behind Nikki Haley. It sounds like he's saying Rothschild. He is the one who's producing anti-Semitism, and at the same time, he's campaigning and and just as he's conning some young people, conning some Jewish voters into thinking um, that he somehow is not introducing a, a new level of hate into the United States um, based on his promise to build on the genocide in Israel and make it even worse. Jeff Charlotte, I want to thank you for being with us, journalist and author, professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, where he's speaking to us from. He's author of the book The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Up next, should Donald Trump be barred from running for president for his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol? Or is taking Trump off the ballot an anti-democratic measure that will only energize his base? We'll host a debate. Stay with us. Same old song by the Four Tops. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Former President Trump's the clear frontrunner in the race for the Republican nomination, despite the fact he faces 91 criminal charges in various cases related to mishandling classified documents, arranging payoffs, seeking to overturn the 2020 presidential election. It's that last charge related to the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol that's the cause of most controversy. There are efforts nationwide to remove Trump from the 2024 presidential ballot based on the 14th Amendment, which says public officials who have, quote, engaged in insurrection, unquote, are disqualified from ever serving again. On February 8th, the Supreme Court will hear an appeal from Donald Trump after judges in Colorado ruled the former president is ineligible to appear on the Colorado primary ballot. The secretary of state of Maine also barred Trump from the ballot, but a judge ruled he should stay on the ballot until the Supreme Court rules on the issue. Did Trump violate the Constitution? Should he be barred from running for president? Or is taking Trump off the ballot an anti-democratic measure that will only energize his base? We're hosting a debate with two guests. In Washington, D.C., we're joined by Praveen Fernandez, the vice president at the Constitutional Accountability Center, 
which filed an amicus brief in the Colorado lawsuit enforcing Trump's constitutional disqualification. We're also joined by Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale University. His recent piece for The New York Times is headlined, The Supreme Court Should Overturn the Colorado Ruling Unanimously. Uh, Professor Moyne is joining us today from Toronto. Let's begin with Paravine Fernandez. Talk about why you back these efforts state by state from Colorado to Maine to take Trump off the ballot. We've, we've always been committed to enforcing the text and history of the Constitution, and that includes the text and history of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, here, for our democracy, it could not be more important than to hold accountable Donald Trump for his actions around January 6th. 2021. And so um, th this is important not only for holding Donald Trump accountable, but it's also important for giving uh, giving meaning to a constitutional provision that was designed precisely for instances just like this. And Samuel Moyne, uh, you disagree. Uh, you've written in The New York Times that to bar Mr. Trump from the ballot now would be the wrong way to show him to the exits of the political system after all these years of strife. Why do you think that? Donald Trump's clearly a menace and getting rid of him is a huge priority, but everything depends on how it's done. Uh, and I really have two concerns. First, a legal one. The legal case isn't airtight under this provision of the Constitution. And the risk is that millions of Americans who back Trump and have looked past or forgiven what he did on January 6th will regard the Supreme Court's intervention as illicit, much the way we all think Bush v. Gore was a tragic mistake. And then there's strategy. I worry that getting rid of Trump this way could backfire. And in particular, it saves the Democrats from the obligation to make their case to the American people that they should win. Uh, Fernandez, what about this issue of granting more power to the Supreme Court in terms of, press, of, of elections and also uh, the, the issue of what, how the Trump base might react uh, to this removal of him from the ballot? Well, I mean, I think we can have, uh, you know, a, a separate conversation about whether the Supreme Court as an institution, um, you know, uh, commands more power vis-a-vis -vis the other branches. But th there's no reason for particular modesty for the U.S. Supreme Court with respect to enforcing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So uh, I, I think that— uh, there's no reason for the Supreme Court to run away from the text and history of this provision. Um, and I, I guess I'm skeptical of this, this notion that somehow leaving it to the voters, um, is a better strategy. I think, uh, the voters certainly spoke in 2020 and resoundingly chose President Biden. Um, President Trump at that time challenged the results of those elections in more than 60 cases and lost. And uh, despite realizing that he lost, sometimes at the hands of judges that he had appointed, and despite all of his closest advisors explaining that he had lost, uh, Trump and a violent faction of his supporters—
tried to wrest power by force, uh, thwarting the will of the electorate. So this notion that somehow leaving it to the voters will somehow get us out of this problem, um, I, I, I don't think is convincing to me. I'm wondering if uh, Professor Moyne can give us the history of the 14th Amendment, and particularly uh, Section 3. Uh, talk about the Civil War and the decisions made afterwards to keep Confederates from running for office. It's a great amendment. If that's all there were in the Constitution, uh, I'd be much more favorable uh, to that document uh, and to the Supreme Court interpreting it. Uh, and it was noble after the Civil War for the radical Republicans who had done so much to you know, free the slaves through war uh, to, to pass the 14th Amendment, which tried to impose democracy uh, after the war on, on the South by keeping uh, ex-Confederates, ex-insurrectionaries from running. And there's no doubt that that was the purpose of Section 3. Uh, th there's a couple of problems, though. Um, I admire Praveen, but there are just doubts about whether it's applicable now, whether it covers presidents uh, who were allegedly insurrectionaries, whether Congress has to act first, uh, and and there are other objections, too. But then there's a, like a, a bigger issue, which is that Section 3 was passed after the Civil War, when the opposition, the insurrectionaries, had been beaten militarily. We're in a situation in which Donald Trump is enormously popular. You said, Amy, that he trounced his opposition last night, and Democrats have to meet that opposition. Now, Praveen's right that there's a risk of violence no matter what. But do we want to have another civil war standing on some interpretation from five judges of an old document? Or do we want the Democrats to offer a credible program for the future of America and then defend that come what may? Uh, Praveen, what about that argument and also the, the viewpoint of some that uh, this is an attempt uh, to circumvent the uh, the the democratic process and and uh, to use lawfare uh, as a means of uh, preventing a candidate from coming to office. Well, I don't think that this uh, that this requirement is any more anti-democratic than a number of other constitutional requirements for the presidency. So uh, we've never left that just to the voters. The Constitution, as you know, sets an age requirement uh, for the presidency. You have to be 35. Uh, says you have to be naturally born, um, a, a natural-born citizen. Uh, so uh, we have never said, well, this is an immensely popular 29-year-old, so we should leave it to the voters. Or uh, the Constitution also provides that you can only serve two terms. So if there's an immensely popular president, we've never said, you know, we should leave this to the voters. This is a constitutional requirement, and the Constitution itself is a democratically enacted instrument. So it was not only democratically enacted, but it was adopted by the high thresholds that we have for constitutional provisions. It was passed by two-thirds majorities in the, in the House and Senate. It was ratified by three-fourths of the states. And so we as a nation have agreed 
to be bound to these rules in the Constitution. And so I don't think this is any more anti-democratic than a number of other constitutional provisions about the requirements and qualifications for the presidency. Praveen, and I uh, also go ahead. I'm so sorry. I would also say I don't think this is an either or uh, proposition where I agree with Professor Moyne is certainly there is a place for uh, other candidates to make their case for a better and brighter vision for the nation and to to win the public narrative uh, strategy. And I, I don't see that as an as an either or situation. I think that has to happen. But that shouldn't be a reason for us to run away from the text and history of this constitutional provision. Wanted to also get your response to whether this applies to the president and then also take that to should everyone convicted um, in 2021, and there are hundreds and hundreds of people um, who have been convicted for their role uh, in the insurrection, should they never be allowed to serve public office? So th those are good questions. Uh, I'll take the, f the first one first. Um, the subject of our amicus brief at the Constitutional Accountability Center um, in the Colorado case was on the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applying to the president as an officer and the presidency as an office. And we looked at the text and history of this amendment. We looked at the textual analysis, the enactment history, the documents, the debates around it. And then we also looked at the plan that the framers had for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And it just doesn't make any sense um, in terms of another interpretation of this provision, not applying it to the president and the presidency. The worries uh, that we see that the framers of this provision had that officers who had broken their oath to support the Constitution would then um, uh, be able to serve office again and be a destabilizing element in our democ democracy. It makes no sense for the framers to have been worried about insurrectionist postmasters and low-level officials, but not concerned with the most powerful office uh, in our land. So I, I would say, yes, it does apply to the president as an officer of the United States, and it does apply to the presidency as an office under the United States. Um, and Praveen, I think your uh, second question, sorry. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, uh, Praveen, I just wanted to ask you if the, even supposing that Trump what, uh, was in violation of Section 3, uh, wouldn't the proper remedy be to ask a federal district court to remove him from office if he's elected, not for a state official to remove him from the ballot? Well, so uh, that, that's also a great question. It's hard to see how that would be any more fair to voters um, after they have cast ballots for somebody who is constitutionally ineligible to serve. Um, uh, this this robs them of the choice to have voted for somebody else in the primary stage. If this is somebody who is constitutionally ineligible to serve, it's hard to see how it would be more fair to allow the election to play out and then to take away their choice, as well as their option to have voted for somebody else, um, you know, if this had been determined earlier. So I think all parties are benefited from a clear decision from the Supreme Court earlier rather than later. Um, and if I could just backtrack to, I, I think it was Amy's question earlier about what this means for other individuals— who participated in the insurrection. I would just say that there's a very narrow thing. This applies only to officers who took an oath and then violated it. So uh, not we're giving just all some, the individuals. Professor Moyne, the last word. You say that uh, progressives should focus on making Biden a more appealing candidate than removing Trump from the ballot. Your final comments. 
1937, Franklin Roosevelt said, if you keep talking about saving democracy, but you mean going back to the way it was, we don't follow you. Uh, and these legalistic strategies, what Juan called lawfare, all the way back into the Trump presidency, have really been ways of trying to put things back the way they were, rather than recognizing that a lot of American people are willing to bracket Trump's evil uh, and vote for him anyway, because the Democrats are not appealing. And that's the challenge I think we all need to face rather than side with centrist Democrats and never Trump Republicans who just want to get rid of Trump as if uh, nothing happened. We want to thank you both for being with us. Samuel Moyne, professor of law and history at Yale University, will link to your New York Times op-ed, The Supreme Court Should Overturn the Colorado Ruling Unanimously, and Praveen Fernandez, vice president of Constitutional Accountability Center, which filed an amicus brief in the Colorado lawsuit. Uh, that does it for our show. Happy birthday to Charina Nadura. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.